Hey guys, welcome to this episode of the Weekly Dispatch. It's Sean, still here in New York City, and we're going to be covering the week of the 29th of September through the 6th of October. want to start off the podcast with congratulating our Cronus Scholars inaugural class. Big shout out to Eric, Mitch, and Rachel. They had incredible packets that they put forth. They have incredible stories. Check them out online. We can't wait to see the impact that they're each going to leave on vets in the future as well as the community at large. Uh, additionally, some stuff on ChronosFit this week. You're going to see some new stuff on the store. You can get our limited supply of ChronosFit socks that we worked with Adam Socks to make. They're quite hot, so make sure you have some ice for your feet. We've got new stickers that are dropping. I've been told that they're pretty metal, as well as the logo sticker. We're still working on getting the shiny logo back up in stock. And then we're working on some prototype designs for more of that swag that you guys have been hitting us up about. Uh, Programs this week, you can check out week nine of the 175 program that's coming to an end here in the next couple of weeks. The open prep for the functional fitness side of the house is still ongoing, so make sure you sign up for Kilomoto so we can start tracking if the military prep folks or the functional fitness folks are going to take it this year. Bobby and I have an ongoing bet, probably going to be based on burpee punishment for who wins this one. And then we can speculate on what's going to happen throughout the term of the open, what kind of workouts we're going to see. I'm hoping for nothing but running, rowing, and deadlifting. Otherwise, it's going to be a very painful week uh, after week after week after week of punishment to get back to the actual competition. As always, our podcast is sponsored by Paragon Recovery. Use the code CRONUS to get great deals on their products. Paragon Recovery keeps you in the fight through activating your recovery and sleep cycles. And check them out online for even more great savings if you're a member of the military community or one of the many law enforcement agencies. Today's podcast, we're going to get back internationally to focusing on some stuff out of Afghanistan and their elections and then the ongoing riots in Hong Kong. Our U.S. news will focus on the Trump impeachment process. We did this last week, but we're going to highlight some more stuff that's come out in the week from another whistleblower to text between former ambassadors over in that region trying to organize meetings and then some of the key individuals like former Mayor Rudy Giuliani as counsel to the president. Our economic focus this week will be fixated on trade and factories around the world and in the United States. How do we measure productivity? What are currency valuations doing to this level of production that we're seeing in the United States? How is this going to impact the election next year? All really key questions that you might have. And then auto loans. Everyone's got them. Well, most people have them. But if you're one of the many thousands of Americans that are currently going and buying, you know, a car every other week, what are we going to look at so far as how can you curb the interest rate that you're going to go and get? What's that going to do with the car that you might already own? So we're going to break that down for you even more. We're going to follow up uh, more of the information on The Hobbit that we've been talking about week in, week out. Where's that conversation going to go? I don't know, but you're probably going to like it. But outside of that... Let's go. All right. Global news will be a very quick segment this week. We're going to start in Afghanistan. 
Last week, we reported that voting was starting to occur around the country. Many thousands of booths had to be shut down because of the threat of violence. And voting turnout looks incredibly bleak a week following these polls. Uh, polls had to be extended in many locations or around the country by several hours because they weren't even getting anyone to come and cast their ballots for either President Ashraf Ghani or Dr. Abdullah Abdullah. Ballot boxes in some areas had unusually high turnout rates, uh, some as high as 90% of all registered voters, which we only see here in America in places like Fox when we're voting for American Idol. I still remember the Justin Duarini and Kelly Clarkson great vote-off of uh, the early 2000s or late 90s. I don't know. I'm dating myself. The commissioners of the Afghan uh, voting registrations are reporting that they can automatically separate duplicate votes through the use of the biometric data that they've collected on each vote, those being fingerprints, a lot of the stuff that you might have had with the bats or Sikhs, uh, for those of you that have been to Afghanistan and spent hours doing that in every single one of the villages that you just happen to go through. One of the things is these polling stations can only record 400 votes given their size. We've got places like Spin Boldak, which is a district in southern Kandahar. They reported that they've gotten 89,000 votes, of which they only have 103 registered voters. Now let's compare that to a place like Kaisar District in Faryab, which has reported significant levels of fighting uh, by the Taliban and other AQ affiliates, and this is coming directly from locals, yet ballot boxes are stuffed with record ballots. And now we go then to Chapahar Nangahar, which is home to as many of you I'm sure know because we reported on it never, but an individual named Fazlahadi Muslamyar. I know I've been there, so that's why I sound like a local. Uh, he is the Speaker of the Senate and also a campaigner of Mr. Ghani. He's actually threatened the Election Commission Chief, again, listen to how I pronounce this name, Hawa Alam Nuristani, uh, who's previously, previously said that only biometrically verified votes would be counted. And the Speaker of the Senate and this campaigner for Mr. Ashraf Ghani is threatening the individual saying, no, you're going to count whatever, especially in Nangahar, where he's hoping we'll have a greater turnout to support the president that he is politically aligned to. But the bad news for Afghanistan is right now they're estimating 2.7 million total votes. They've still not gone through the process, and the commission is a little weary to announce the winner because fear of internal fighting and actual violence. So unlike America, where we might have some dispute over who's been elected president, in Afghanistan the threat is actually physical violence and something that with a police force and an army which stand on opposite sides of the political spectrums based on which party controls them, you might actually see some repercussions. So warlord type stuff. Hopefully that doesn't happen in Afghanistan. We've still got thousands of troops there, but I can only imagine how frustrating it's gotta be for individuals in Afghanistan there to fight guys like AQ and Taliban, having to probably deal with a lot of the political ramifications of a country that Outside of that, they have no real vested interest in. Hopefully next week we can announce who the new president is. Speaking of presidents and one that will never step down, China and Hong Kong. The first protester after months of protesting in Hong Kong has been shot. This was all caught on video and the individual that was shot is a high school student. 
in the video, you can see this individual, he's masked. He swung at a police officer with a metal bar. And it's really sad when you look at a situation like this, but it's also something that you should step back and be impressed by because after months of rioting, they've reported no deaths or at least no reported deaths. So this is the, the first time that we actually have some sort of a response from individuals as they are increasing this threat posture between the locals that are complaining and the police force that's supposed to protect them, but also, you know, protect some of the interests of the Hong Kong government. But this individual's not dead yet. I, I should caveat that. The high school student was shot in the chest and is still in critical condition. And all this comes on the same day as Beijing's National Day of Festivities, where they're celebrating their country. They had a giant parade for the president. But we're also now finding out that the police are demanding that activists remove face masks, trying to deter some of the anonymous violence that they've tied to these youth elements. Because if you remember 1997, Britain leaves Hong Kong, they've still got a 50-year deal with China saying we will not formally go into the Chinese realm of total control and losing some of the freedoms that they had under a British occupation. And why potentially is taking the mask off maybe something that will deter future protests? Well, China has one of the most advanced biometric tracking systems in the world thousands of cameras all over the place. It's a lot like Eagle Eye with Shia LaBeouf, the famous Canadian, I think. Anyway, uh, with that biometric data that they can track, they can literally follow a person from leaving their home, in most cases, to where they wind up to where they're protesting. So if they can identify protesters, there might be another way that China can influence exactly who is coming out to protest. They can track them and understand what kind of web data, web services they're using to communicate. So it's less about trying to prevent these Antifa-like mobs, and I understand they are nothing like Antifa. It's a much different political message that they're pushing for, but the same frustrations when you can't see the face of the individual that's hurling something at you. Or if you're protesting and you're covering your face, you're creating one kind of unifying symbol of what your protest looks like. But at the same time, it is very unsettling when you're looking at a mass of individuals and you can't say, okay, yeah, that's this person, that's that person. So from both sides of the spectrum, you can totally understand how it's difficult when you're trying to police and prevent some violence. I mean, this 18-year-old swung a metal pipe at a police officer. It's one of those instances where you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. But you really hope that Hong Kong is able to quell some of this violence and they come to terms about what freedom means in that city and how it's going to translate to a larger China, you know, under the one China uh, region that they're trying to develop there under the president. But that's going to do it for the international news as we start moving into the meat of this topic, which is the Trump legal action. If you've been watching any of the news, right now you're seeing Mr. Giuliani, the former mayor of New York, who worked in New York almost his entire life as a lawyer and an attorney, and now he's a personal counsel for President Trump. He's on every single TV show, mostly a lot of Fox on the Hannity's, the Tuckers, the Lauren Ingram, and then he's been stepping aside too, but 
He's on TV a lot right now threatening individuals like Adam Schiff and a number of other departments within the Justice Department, the legislative branch, everything except the executive branch for claims that the investigation and impeachment are violating both his freedoms and the president's privilege as head of the executive branch. Mr. Giuliani has gone so far as to hire John Sale, who is the former assistant special prosecutor in the Watergate investigation as his lawyer in the congressional investigations. This week, the House subpoenaed Mr. Giuliani for documents. That was on Monday. This comes after reports this week, too, that Attorney General Barr last month went to Rome to meet with Italian prosecutors, further fueling the conspiracy that American allies conspired with a deep state in the 2016 election to deny President Trump his presidency. You might be shaking your head right now in the car going, what? Where did Italy come into this? I had no idea either. The basic idea is that it was not Russia and its trolls that hacked the election, but places like Australia, Italy, and Great Britain, and obviously the Clintons. But Mueller and his investigation really found insufficient evidence to support a lot of these claims, or any of these claims, um, that international governments, aside from Russian hackers, were the ones who attempted to subvert the election. This week, Lindsey Graham fired off a letter on Wednesday to Britain, Italy, and Australia to urge them in helping investigate the origins and the extent of their foreign influence. This is just fueling a conspiracy that Russia wasn't the source. Places like the Ukraine, Italy, Australia, Great Britain, they're really the enemies of my enemy is my friend. So if one plus one is three and four and five, then Russia was actually trying to help us. It's just kind of going back to the idea that because the election in 2016 has not been the bright spot for President Trump, that we've got to still look back to that date and find out who didn't want him to be president other than the millions of Americans who didn't vote for him. So this is just, I think, trying to detract from the actual impeachment process that's going on. And we're going to get into that. Because if you look back to Russia, way back when, the guy named George Papadopoulos, one of the things that started all this was him talking out loud that Russia had provided him with fuel, um, that they had this politically damaging information in the form of thousands of emails from then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. The individual that Mr. Papadopoulos was talking to is now an individual the Trump administration is claiming was a CIA agent planted by the Obama administration. Uh, one of the individuals, his name is Mr. Misfuti, was a professor. The dude subsequently disappeared from the public eye. They want to get back to exactly what's going on. We also jumped to Ukraine and Biden. Here's a question that you should ask yourself. The main story behind the Biden vice presidency debacle that's now the target of the Trump administration is he had a special prosecutor in Ukraine fired for really failing to do his job and really investigate corruption. The other charge is that Hunter Biden, Vice President Joe Biden's son, was involved in a gas company in Ukraine, which was not being prosecuted. It wasn't being investigated. So my question that I would pose to you is, would it make sense if the vice president wanted his son to be successful in what is a shady deal to have a prosecutor that won't prosecute his son fired for one that could? 
So if we just step back from a purely analytical position and put our lawyer hats on, would having someone that could potentially provide damaging information about your son and your involvement fired be something that's good for you or good for any future presidential campaign you might decide? So that's just something we got to think about because right now the catalyst for the investigation is the support that Joe Biden provided Ukraine with, as well as some other Western democracies, in removing this special prosecutor who was identified as corrupt. So that's just something we should look in. The other thing is the juxtaposition of the request for aid and then that help looking into Biden. The weird position is Ukraine needs U.S. support in dollars. If they don't help President Trump in his request, they risk losing millions of dollars or timely millions of dollars. And if they help, but then Vice President Biden wins the elections, now they've completely alienated another partner and potential ally for the sake of helping him at this present time in 2019. So if you're an individual in Ukraine, what options do you really have? If you feel like you're being influenced, it's not maybe come out directly and said, you must do this, the quid pro quo, but rather, we strongly recommend you support the president right now, but you're not sure if he's going to be president in two years and what kind of policy ramifications the United States election will provide for a current conflict on your border with Russia. So that's something that I think we should all kind of step back and do some personal reflection because we've all been in situations where, hey, you got some bad grades. Well, who's going to be home at the end of the day from work first? Is it going to be mom or dad? Because you know if it's mom, you're probably going to get the backhand. You know if it's dad, he's probably just going to be really disappointed in you or vice versa. So that's kind of what Ukraine's in a position with right now. They've got some really bad forces on their border. Clearly, Russia is not a good ally to the United States. So with that contextually defining the landscape that we're operating in, how do you balance the threat of potentially losing millions of aid timely when you need it, which has already been appropriated to you, versus waiting out for the next guy to come in and maybe give you a better deal? So again, we're not trying to give any of our political affiliations or ideas, but just those are some of the things that we've thought about after reading the news the last couple of weeks as to how maybe that we can rectify this situation. And with that situation, some of the other news that's come out this week are text messages. These text messages are between uh, the former NATO ambassador Mr. Volker, who was the special representative appointed to the Ukraine, who resigned on the 27th of September, and then guys like former ambassador to Estonia, James Melville. Uh, ahead, leading up to this talk in July, Mr. Giuliani had done a lot to talk to Ukrainians into coming to the table to talk to Mr. Trump, as well as working with Mr. Volker. And some of these text messages, I think, kind of paint the picture of exactly where Ukraine might have been, not from individuals at the top, but the individuals that are supporting these meetings and trying to paint a picture to their bosses of, this is what we want. So we're going to start off with one of the things. On the 25th of July, the day of the meeting, ahead of that planned phone call, Mr. Volker sent 
a text message to Andre Yermak in which he said, hey, good lunch, thanks. Heard from the White House, assuming President Z, that's the president of Ukraine, convinces Trump he will investigate and get to the bottom of what happened in 2016, we will then nail down a visit to Washington. Good luck. See you tomorrow. So that kind of seems like something in which we're urgently seeking a meeting to show that we're still going to talk about the Russian aggression. We're still going to talk about what's going on in 2016, but we're starting to paint this picture that there might be an alternative message that we're trying to send. So that's kind of painting the picture of that morning. We fast forward to about a month later, and that's when the Ukraine has become aware that this military aid that was supposed to come from the United States got delayed. And then Andrei Yermak is sending a message you know, to Volcker saying essentially, hey, we need to talk to you because Politico ran a story that Trump was withholding this aid that was supposed to combat Russia. Keep fast-forwarding, and the next thing you know, on September 1st, we have Ambassador Taylor seeking clarifications for a White House visit that was subsequently canceled for the President, uh, Zelensky, in which he says, hey, are we now saying that security assistance and the White House meeting are conditioned on the investigations? To which his response was, quote-unquote, call me. So looking at that just from 30,000 feet, you say that there's probably going to be some confusion from the perspective of these ambassadors that are setting up the meetings to their bosses about what the intent behind the meetings is. Is the intent that we're meeting to talk about aid to combat Russian aggression, or is it now this subtextual influence of investigations into a 2016 event, how they relate to a 2020 election, potentially now that Vice President Biden may be the front runner for the Democrats. And is that something now that we're working through and trying to not have on the Twitter sphere? But obviously, that's not been the case as it's come out. And then we fast forward to September 9th. And this is the text exchange that probably tipped the scale so far as the reporting. So this is between Bill Taylor, Gordon Sundlin in which Bill Taylor says, hey, the message to the Ukrainians and Russians we send with the decision on security assistance is key. With the hold, we have shaken their faith in us, and this is my nightmare scenario. Bill Taylor responds, um, oh, excuse me, that was Bill Taylor, and then Gordon Sondland said, hey, Bill, I never said I was right. I said we are where we are and believe we have identified the best path forward. Let's hope it works. And then Bill said, I said on the phone, I think it's crazy to withhold security assistance for help with a political campaign. And this is where you can kind of see the whole message shift. It's almost, it's very, it's very crafted the way that Gordon Sunderland now responds. Bill, I believe you are incorrect about President Trump's intentions. The president has been crystal clear, no quid pro quo of any kind exists. The president is trying to evaluate whether Ukraine is truly going to adopt the transparency and reforms that President Zelensky promised during his campaign. I suggest we stop the back and forth by text. If you still have concerns, I recommend you give blah, blah, blah to talk directly. So anyway, long story short is there's a lot of information out there that seems to paint the picture that at least if it wasn't President Trump's intent to withhold assistance until the 
investigation was started or wrapped up uh, by the Ukrainians in order to provide the aid or to have that investigation started before they formally met in Washington, D.C., I think you could say that individuals there would have a tough time analyzing the mixed messaging coming from individuals within the administration up to the president and then in Ukraine trying to understand that with the timeliness of a Ukrainian-Russian ongoing conflict. So I'm sure in the next week and a half, two weeks, we're going to see more stuff uh, as Congress will come back from its two-week pausa, which is German. And we're going to find out probably a lot more as the subpoenaed information uh, from both Barr and Giuliani and Mike Pompeo uh, start comes into these congressional committees in which we can really nail down the question. That, that next question is going to be for a lot of Republican lawmakers. We see on the Democratic side, a lot of people have now completely swung towards the it's time to impeach. But for Republicans in town hall meetings that you've probably seen across the country playing out on some of the news platforms, Republican lawmakers are getting the tough questions asked. What is a red line? Where does it stand for them? Because now voters are asking the Republican elected officials, if President Trump has done X, Y, and Z, at what point will you no longer support the president of the United States? And m most of the answers are, I can't speak for the president. I can't say what he is doing in this situation. And then the follow-up question is always, well, you have a personal stance. What is it? And that stance is usually something along the lines of, well, I don't support blah, 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 corruption. Corruption should be weeded out. So yeah, that is a, a process that we still have to support and ask, regardless of what it looks like politically. So I think we're getting to the point in the United States where it's going to be very difficult to get straight answers out of politicians. And for those of you that are listening, make sure you are registering to vote because I understand how voting for president seems like a complete waste of time. Trust me, I get it. But you need to get out there and vote for your local House and Senate leaders because it is one-third of the government. It's got one-third of the authority for making laws, passing legislation. It's the f slowest way right now to get anything done. But if you get your voices out there and heard, these individuals that are sitting up there not giving you the answers that you're looking for if you're a Republican or not getting the stuff done that you want against another party if you're a Democrat, really respond to you and your questions. So either call them and ask them the questions or vote them out of office or run yourself. We have a large community of veterans that are currently in the House and in the Senate that I find more often than not are the let's get things done, let's work across the aisles because you all have been in situations that demand a high level of stress, but you have to come to a resolution and get things done because someone's life at the end of the day matters, or at least that's what you're training for. And if you've deployed, that's what you did. But it doesn't seem like that there's an urgency within Washington, D.C.'s beltway of getting things done. So last charge to you guys is go out and vote. Go out and run for these offices and make sure you get your voice heard because at the end of the day, we're on this rock rotating around the sun for a very limited time. You don't want to get to the end of your life and look back and say, hey, I probably could have made a difference. I should probably start now. Like, let's get after it right now, guys, and, and let's go change the, the landscape of the United States. Oh my God, there's still more whistleblower stuff. Oh, I thought I was at the end of that segment. I had such a high note that we ended on. Okay. 
sorry. Yeah, there's another whistleblower complaint. The same attorney who represents the first complainant is now representing a second. The second individual is being interviewed right now by the Intelligence Community's Inspector General's Office, but hasn't had any communication yet with the congressional committees. Uh, I still have to report this. Oh, my God. Okay, Republican responses right now. They can't speak for the president, and uh, they are attacking a deep state, uh, protecting kind of Russian allies and interests. Um, and then this just goes back to some of the Fox News segments uh, that you're seeing with Giuliani, uh, Stephen Miller, and Lewandowski talking for the president. Um, since we're not doing a lot of our international relations through a State Department effort. Okay, that's it. We're done with the whistleblower stuff. Now we can move on to really great news about the economy and factories. I know everyone there loves factories. Okay, activity is contracted for the second time in as many months. We're hitting a 10-year low. Good for us, guys. If you're driving, pull over, pat yourself on the back. For September, which is spurring stock market decline, what is causing the level of factory work to go down? It's lowest level since 2009 and the worst quarterly performance per the market index and prompting a wave of central bank stimulus around the world from the Federal Reserve to European Central Bank. So what's causing this? Right now, the trade wars that we currently have ongoing and the crisis in the EU is making the dollar valuations and the currency valuations around the world very difficult to level. And when that happens is you lose some purchasing power. This is one of the key arguments that we had against China in the last couple of years is artifi artificially deflating their currency allows them to purchase more uh, abroad with currencies that are uh, less strong. So what that means is, for instance, in the United States, if our dollar buys us a lot in China, well, if the Chinese market sees that value of the dollar and goes, okay, that's expensive. I don't want to buy something from the United States. Then all of a sudden our exports go down. So in order for us to have some trade parity, we start implementing a lot of tariffs. So that's the same thing that when we looked at China and said, hey, you guys are artificially lowering your market value, which makes it easier for you to trade internationally with the former markets that we were ma maximizing our outputs in. It just creates like a, a disbalance. There's a there's a weird element in the force. Uh, all of a sudden, millions of people cried out in pain. Anyway, what this does is it prompts central banks to lower overnight interest rates so that these factories can borrow more money to keep up with what they hope will eventually turn around into an increase in demand and then providing supplies for a lot of these products globally. But right now, the US economy is not doing poorly the US dollar is actually doing really well. And because our dollar is so high, when we look to markets like the EU, which in the past, the dollar has been significantly less weighted against the Euro, and it's been more expensive to purchase from there. Now it's less expensive, and it's now more expensive for the Europeans to start cashing in on our products. Uh, the World Trade Organization forecasts like all-time lows uh, will really start impacting investment and jobs. And 
back to this 2009 timeline and what that matters is it's the lowest annual growth since that time. We're at just like 1.2%, which is down 3% from this time last year for total global cross-border trade. So all around the world, we're having this problem. It's kind of a, a very, not just geographic-centric problem. What's going to compound this issue is there's an October deadline for the EU for Brexit. And then October 15th, we've got $200 billion worth of tariffs that the U.S. implemented that are currently at a 25% rate on China. That's about to go up to 30% October 15th. And then we start having companies, about 2,500 of them, asking Trump to exclude about 21,000 products as part of that tariff implementation because U.S. factories are struggling to produce the levels that they need to sustain workers and a positive work environment before they start having to lay off individuals around the country. And then we talk about workers. Now we're gonna shift to buying cars with debt. So this year alone, a third of auto loans taken out in 2019 are for six plus year length loans. Typically you're looking at a four to five year loan, but now we're going into the six plus year loan. And that's all a result of more Americans in the middle class trying to work towards a lifestyle increasing the luxury value in a mid-level car that most can't afford. We've got new tech in cars that four years ago didn't exist. But that tech that was four years old is now coming standard. But individuals want these add-ons that aren't usually included in the baseline when you go and purchase. Only 18% of U.S. households even have enough liquid assets to cover the cost of a new car. Most middle-class Americans can really only afford an $18,000 car, and that's putting 20% down and a payment of less than 10% of their growth monthly income. But the loan size over the last decade has shown an average car to be $32,000. An average loan stretch is 69 months, and then about 2% of total loans are now for 85 months or more. And then the worst part about this is a third of new card buyers are trading in their existing cars that still have loans on them and they're rolling that debt into the new car. So we go back to 2009. So we're looking at a financial crisis. Uh, a lot of that stemming from the housing market. And if you remember then, we would bundle all of these mortgages because we were giving mortgages to individuals that could not afford them. What's different about this situation right now is we're bundling car loans for individuals that really can't afford their cars, but it's nothing quite as severe as a $1,200 to $4,200 monthly mortgage. So now it's something like, hey, we've got a financed arm that's going to pull about $1.2 billion worth of 2017 Honda Accords, and we're going to take 7,000 loans and put them into one, and we're going to go and take this, and we're going to sell it to a buyer who is now going to collect the interest. And unlike a house where if you don't make the payments on your house, that's usually going to be taken away from you. It's going to be foreclosed on. With cars, they can keep you paying minimums and collecting more interest on that pooled loan so they're making more money on the end because they know you need a car to work. They know that if they foreclose on your house, you can move out. It's going to look bad on your credit history, but you can try to find somewhere else to move in. It's probably not going to be like you're going to go homeless. But if you don't have a car... That's a much scarier threat. So a $32,000 debt that you have and that will keep growing so long as you need to be employed and have a car is not something they're fearful of 
of collapsing the financial markets. U.S. consumers right now hold $1.3 trillion in debt, and that's just tied to cars. That's up $740 billion. So we've nearly doubled the total number of loans and debt that consumers have in America from just automobiles. And a lot of financing happens just with like clickbait on the internet when you're purchasing your car. Dealerships make like $982 per new vehicle that they just have someone sign up for versus about $381 on a casual sale. So just keep that in mind. And that's gonna do it for our economy section because we're running long on this one today. Okay, now we're going to transition to something fun. The Hobbit. I know everyone does Cronus Fit because of their love of The Hobbit. Here's some cool information. Did you know that Gloin was in the original cast of the Bilbo Baggins adventure to reclaim the kingdom under the mountain? And that he is the father of Gimli, the same individual that made up one of the members of the Fellowship of the Ring. How cool is that? I didn't realize that until about two weeks ago when uh, I made that discovery. Not on my own, but uh, heard that and I thought, wow, that's really cool news. Another question about The Hobbit. You remember when Bilbo Baggins fools the cave trolls from eating all the dwarves until Gandalf comes and the sun rises and they're turned to stone? Well, then how come when we go to the Fellowship of the Ring, those cave trolls aren't as articulate and are kind of brutish? These cave trolls that Bilbo was able to prevent from eating his company were talking about seasoning, the dwarves, about different spices that they would add to this grog, that they were making this soupy mixture, how they were going to slice and dice the dwarves. Yet we see the same trolls, both in the minds of Moria and the Fellowship of the Ring and then Return of the King as they are marching on Minas Tirith. And these guys don't seem to be as smart. They're not as vocal. Yeah, they crush through some of the walls and they're swinging big clubs, but you don't hear them talk. And I think that was something I was now in my later years hoping to see. I mean, can you imagine if a cave troll giant was leading like another faction of giants? It's kind of like Warhammer 40K. Like I imagine them to be like the dreadnoughts. Uh, something that, you know, you could put some deep strike, you know, roll a six and they die, but one through five, they're good behind enemy lines. So if you've played 40K, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, uh, we're going to talk about some fitness stuff right now. You can totally check out if you don't want, but fitness and shaming. So Cronus Fit does not approve of shaming individuals that are trying to work out. But Sean, in the past, you've totally ripped on people for wearing what you call just the most douchey clothing ever in the gym. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, angel on my left shoulder, I absolutely have. And I won't stop that. But what I'm talking about is shaming individuals that are overweight or trying to work out in the gym. I'm not talking about your Chads, Brads, and your Kyles, guys, okay? I'm talking about individuals that clearly are trying to make a lifestyle change. And one of the things that came up that was on the James Corden Late Night Show was he acknowledged 
that being overweight is something that's completely obvious. I don't think we live still in a society that glamorizes obesity. And some people are like, no, just look at the, you know, the holiday uh, cover on, I think it was Cosmo, the Tess Holiday cover. Look at the celebrities that are now gracing covers that are overweight. I don't think it's sensationalizing the lack of problems that we have with obesity or the number of diseases and health issues that we have with obesity, but it's something that's obvious to them, but people aren't being mean about it. But James Corden had a very good point. When, when you shame an individual at the gym or prevent them from working out at the gym because you feel you own a piece of equipment that they might need help on, what do you think happens to them when they go home? Do you think they're going to want to come back to the gym and work out as hard because they know they're going to be looked at or judged? And I can understand how like Planet Fitness might now survive in this kind of uh, an environment if, they, if this is really the road that some people take. And then stress eating. It's something that really does happen. So if an individual feels they're not going to see any results and that they're not welcome in a gym setting, when they go home, they're going to eat. It's not like you tell them not to eat and they go, okay, well, this fit person told me not to eat, so I'm going to do it. So these are legitimate problems that we have with a community that is growing in size both literally and figuratively, in the United States, and we have to come to terms on how can we positively change the culture. One of the big critiques has been, well, 40 years ago, we didn't have this problem. People were bullied for their size, and they just dealt with it. Well, guys, I hate to tell you, the people that 40 years ago were bullying others for their size are some of the largest Americans that baby, baby boomer generation are incredibly overweight and obese because of the diets that they chose. So a lot of times, too, it's not necessarily the workouts that people are choosing to follow, it's the diet. So it might not have anything to do actually with the willpower of a person to wanna to get out and work out. And I get it, when you see someone on the treadmill and they're just walking or on an elliptical and they're going for 45 minutes and barely moving, they're just getting like you know a basic blood flow circulation thing going, that can be frustrating. But if there is not a lot of support out there and an effective diet which will make a lifelong change. These people don't sometimes have the same resources that you or I have. They don't have someone like a Bobby that I can call and say, this isn't working for me with my eating habits and my life structure. What do I need to do differently? And so they're reliant on a lot of fads that they're seeing online. And if you're online and you're making comments or you're making it appear that there is no room for failure and all you post online is just positive, look at me, I'm so great, I've never had a failed lift in my life, I've never been in a dark place in my life. That kind of environment creates a false sense of security, I guess, for you, but for another individual that's looking at that and judging it, it also creates an unattainable position of happiness based off of another's outward appearance. So what I'm trying to say is, if you have an opportunity to say something kind to someone in the gym, if you are an individual who has the depth of knowledge to impact someone's life with something as simple as, hey, if you cut your eating times to X, Y through Z, or you cut out just this, or if we do this differently on this workout, if you just cut 30 seconds off each one of your rest periods, you're going to increase the metabolic rate for blah, blah, blah. If you can do something like that, that's gonna be significantly more motivating for that person to come back and be positive in the gym than maybe making comments under your breath, being impatient with them on an equipment piece that you want. Uh, 
from the different gyms that I've been in, I, I see that quite frequently. And I think it's incredibly awesome to see someone that is obviously overweight in there, sweating their ass off compared to someone who's just sitting there and just living the Instagram lifestyle. So that's what I want to leave this whole podcast on, which has been a majority of just nothing but negative crap that we've just piled on your car ride. So I apologize that the news has not been fun this week. But get out there again. We always say it. Be the difference you want to see. Be somebody and make good decisions that are going to leave a lifelong impact outside of just your daily grind. All right. You guys can always find us if you have questions at hq at chronosfit.org. Uh, at chronosfit at gmail.com on our Instagram at chronosfit Facebook hit us up if you have any questions we're always here we want to make a community that is determined to create a not just a, a faddish point in their life but a lifestyle change and that we're always committed to a larger organization outside of ourselves for us it's the veteran community and many of you that are listening that have questions about what a community like this does So get out. You guys have a good rest of your week. Next week, I promise we'll have something more fun to cover. Maybe I'll do a special on pumpkin spice lattes and the best PSL in the New York City area. But outside of that, guys, you guys have a great, fantastic week. Hit us up for any questions. Listen to Brain Body Bobby every week. And then check out the Weekly Dispatch next week for a more positive dose of American and global news. Peace.